0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in
1: Cheyenne, Wyoming. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, My soul knows that very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand." I awake, and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This morning, we're praying for the Franzini fam, for the Franzinis, Mirko and Paola in Italy. Um, join with me in prayer. Father God, I praise you and I thank you for Mirko and Paola and for their work that they do for you. Lord, for the small groups that they lead in their region. Lord, I praise and ask that you would bless them because Italy is shut down and they can't do church just because of the uh, prevention of the coronavirus in that country. And I just really pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give people in Italy encouragement and strength and give Franzini's uh, peace and strength as they are dealing with this particular issue. And Lord, they recently had a small group Bible study that didn't go well. And so I pray, Father God, for the circumstances uh, that you would soften the people's hearts towards you, Lord, and draw them to yourself, that they may come to call you Lord and Savior. And ask, Lord Jesus, that you would give Franzini's um, encouragement and strength to push through and to keep moving forward in their walk and their work for you. And I pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. You may be seated.
2: I'm going to have Brady come on up. Uh, Brady has become a good friend of mine. Uh, we have a mutual friend who introduced us, uh, who was a cat, uh, formerly known as Oreo, now known as Tuxedo. And I kind of like Tuxedo better. Um, but, but anyway, that's how we met. We, we were friends on Facebook, and we don't know how that happened. Uh, all I can say is that it's the providence of God, and so I can't wait uh, for you to hear uh, Brady's story and, and how he's going to encourage us from the scriptures. Thanks, Brady.
0: Good morning. Yep, thank you, Keith. Morning, everyone. It's so uh, good to be with you guys. Uh, like he said, my name is Brady Cohn. I live here in Cheyenne. I just moved here a little over a year ago, so it's great to be speaking at a church in your town. I'm usually all over the country uh, on the weekends, and so it is great to... Uh, be able to share here in here in Cheyenne. Uh, so today we're talking about the topic of sexuality. It's a, such a huge topic to talk about. Uh, you know, we might be here for a while. I hope we don't have lunch plans, or uh, and you drink plenty of coffee because we have a lot to unpack. But seriously, I'll, I'll try to get us out of here on time. But I think that when we think about sexuality uh, and where our culture is at, we see a culture that is so confused and it's such a passionate, emotional topic for so many people uh, that we don't even know how to talk about it. And I think that when I, th- I think of where our culture is at with issues of sexuality and marriage, a passage of Scripture that comes to mind comes from First Timothy uh, chapter 1, um, verses 5 through 7, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving away from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they so- make uh, confident assertions. So our, our culture is so confident in what they believe about sexuality and relationships. Um, and our culture says that they're all about love. They say that uh, there, there's nothing wrong with any two people from loving each other or any three people from loving each other. Like we're all about love. We, we celebrate every kind of love. Uh, but our culture has no idea what it looks like to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, a heart, a conscience, a faith that's, that have been informed by God's Word and transformed by God's Word. And so today I, I pray that through my story and some things that God put on my heart to share that I can shed a little bit of light on what it looks like to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith and then what it looks like to make disciples in the current culture that we're in. So let me open us in prayer and then I will start with my story. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this church. I thank you for every person you brought in this room today. I thank you for my story that I'm willing to sh- and able to share this morning. That uh, I-, I thank you for the transformation you've done in my life. Um, I-, I pray that through my story, people can get a glimpse of your grace and of who you are. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So my story begins a few decades ago, growing up on a farm in Nebraska. I come from a very rural place. I remember growing up as a very young boy, always with this feeling that I was different than my dad and my older brother, but I wasn't sure where those differences were. It wouldn't be until years later when I started to maybe see some of those differences come out. In the meantime, I grew up in a church-going family. We went to church on Sundays, we prayed before our meals, we did all the good things that, you know, a good small-town church-going family is supposed to do. But I did have the understanding from a young age that I was a sinner who needed Jesus. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that background. I'm very thankful for that truth being instilled in me from a young age. Well, at the age of 11, my life got pretty messy when my parents got a divorce. Many of you guys have dealt with those situations in your family, and you know how difficult that can be. So my, my parents went through this divorce, you know, the whole process of fighting over each other's stuff. And they finally went to court where it was finalized. And we finally thought, finally, we can move on with our lives. It's done. But instead, after their divorce was finalized, my parents actually got back together 17 times. And so 17 times, my dad actually moved back in with us. And obviously, every time, it didn't work out. And so that was three years of just mass instability, Uh, not knowing month to month what parent I'd be living with. If my parents would be together, where we'd be living and it was just a time of chaos and confusion. And that time frame from 11 to 14 is a very uh, informative time in a young person's life. And for me, it was filled with this just confusion and chaos that I had a really hard time understanding. Well, it's during the beginning of that time, about age of 11, that I started to see some differences between me and the other boys. It, it was you know, junior high, and junior high is a horrible time for everyone, right? It's like all these changes happening, all this kind of awkwardness. And all of my friends were starting to kind of gain this attraction to girls. They're starting to notice girls in ways that they'd never noticed girls before. All of a sudden, girls were going from having cooties to being kind of cute. There's that type of transformation happening in in the rest of the boys. But I wasn't feeling those things for. Uh, girls, I was starting to feel those same things for other boys. I was starting to notice this emotional and physical and sexual just draw towards them, this attraction towards them. I was being kind of captivated by them, and I was really confused about those feelings. I didn't know why I was having those feelings. I had enough church background to know that homosexuality was a sin, but I'd grown up some very kind of legalistic, self-righteous churches where it's always preached from the standpoint of that's the one unforgivable sin. So just the fact that I had these feelings was consuming me with shame and guilt. Well, I kept them a secret for a couple years, but during those couple years, from about 11 to 13, they started to really just grow and fester and occupy more and more my thought life and consume me more and more. And so I finally decided about age of 13, I just have got to tell someone. I cannot keep this a secret. I've got to get some help. Well, my family life was kind of a wreck, and so I didn't think I could tell my family. And so I thought maybe I should tell someone at youth group. My family had really walked away from the church, but I was going to youth group on Wednesday nights because I was the one in the family who really had this desire to know God and to serve Him. So I was going to youth group, so I thought I should maybe tell a youth group leader, and they would have some answers for me. Well, one night at a youth group, before I got the courage to do that, was a moment that forever changed my life. I'll never forget sitting there as just a very confused, hurting 13-year-old, when the pastor made the comment from the pulpit, he said, I wish all homosexuals would die. And that moment felt like a knife to my chest. I'll never forget sitting there, just frozen, thinking, wow, he's talking about me when he says that. that, that's me who he's talking about. I actually went home that night, and I loaded a gun, and I was going to end my life, because I thought, if it's God's will for a homosexual to die like I heard at a youth group, then I guess I will. Well, thankfully, by the grace of God, before I pushed the trigger on the gun, I heard my mom walk in the front door, so I heard and put the gun underneath my bed before she found anything. So obviously, I didn't end my life that night, but that was just the start of a downward spiral in my life. That was a moment I put up a wall, and I said, I guess I can't let anyone in. I guess I can't let anyone see what's going on inside of me. That was also the moment I developed a very deep trust towards Christians and the God that they served. And I didn't go back to church. I didn't go back to youth group because I didn't trust Christians. I, I wanted to hide from them so that was the start of this downward spiral into the, this, this other life I started to live. Uh, it was soon after the youth group incident that I discovered online pornography for the first time, which uh, was 20 years ago, was really new in our culture because the internet was pretty new. Uh, some of you have a hard time believing that, but you know, we had this you know horrible dial-up internet, and, uh, and I... I Remember the moment so clearly. That I discovered gay porn for the first time, and I was instantly hooked. And for me, uh, this pornography felt like more than just a sexual addiction. For me, it felt like this is the only place I can go where I can be understood, where there's people that have the same feelings as me, where I can have the sense of belonging. And I so desperately wanted to belong somewhere, and it felt like the only place I can do that is in this online world of darkness. So I ran to that over and over again. Well, just like many pornography addictions do, eventually what you're seeing on the screen is not enough. You want to experience it for yourself. And so I started to experiment with sexual encounters with other guys. Uh, this was 20 years ago in small town Nebraska, but I could get online any night of the week and find guys uh, to, to hook up with and help me experiment in those ways, sometimes older guys, sometimes guys willing to pay me for that. And part of it felt so fulfilling because I've, I've dreamed about this for years. I've, I've desired this. I've craved this for so long that I've got to have this. Sometimes I I remember waking up in the mornings thinking, I can't go the rest of my day without fulfilling these desires. So I'd find a way to do that. So sexual encounters became more regular. I started to experiment with Uh, same-sex relationships with other boys. And at that time, the LGBT community was so much more underground than it is today, obviously. But it was there, and so I found it. That gave me a place that I could uh, feel like I had a sense of belonging and where people understood me, and that's what I longed for so badly. Well, going through the rest of high school years... It felt like a kind of a pendulum of emotions going back and forth. I was really wrestling with, with questions of like, who am I? What does this mean for my life? Can I ever be married and have a family? And our society was uh, talking about these issues a lot more. And what they're saying is, if you're same-sex attracted, you just need to be gay, accept your identity as a gay person, uh, live that life that's really the only way to happiness and fulfillment. That's who you are, and you should celebrate it. Well, it felt like I was just born that way, and so I guess I'd made sense. So I guess that's the only thing that, that uh, I knew. So I was trying to accept my identity um, as, as a gay man and as being part of just who I am and finding ways to be happy in that life. But I was on this kind of spiritual pendulum where on one side say, all right, God, I want to serve you, I want to love you, but I don't think that you can love me the way that I am. I, I think I have to fix myself for you to love me. Your, your words seem to say that this is a sin, and so uh, I'll just walk away from this. I'll pretend like it was never there. And so I do that. I'd, I'd walk away from the pornography, from the LGBT community, the sexual encounters, and just pretend like that part of my life never existed. And for those of you who have ever struggled with any type of addiction, you know how this goes. Um, It lasted on average about 42 to 46 minutes, and then I'd fall into pornography again and then just give up. And the pendulum would swing in the opposite direction where I'd say, all right, I guess this is just who I am. This is who I have to be. But then I'd ask God, how could a loving God create me in a way, because it felt like I was created this way, how could a loving God create me in a way that's going to condemn me to hell? And my only answers to that were that either uh, God is not a loving God or there is no God at all. So that's where I was when I graduated from high school. Just trying to find fulfillment, trying to figure out how am I going to live this life? How am I going to accept this identity as a gay man? It just seems like this is who I am and who I have to be. So I have to find a way to be happy with that. Well, I went on to college at a small college in Nebraska called Shattern State. And I'll never forget pulling up to the dorms for the first time to unload my car into my dorm room. There's this group of guys standing there uh, to help me unload my things. There's kind of a typical college ministry outreach to help the freshmen move in. And so they helped me move in, and then they invited me to a ministry on campus that met on Wednesday nights. And so I I showed up that first Wednesday night, and me showing up uh, that first Wednesday night to this ministry wasn't because I was walking with God, it wasn't because I I had a relationship with God, but I had uh, this kind of Christian image thing going on still. I wanted people to think I was a good Christian person. I was kind of a loner, so I thought maybe it would be a place to make some friends. And so I went uh, on that Wednesday night, and I'm sure it was good. There's a praise band, there's a speaker, and I faithfully showed up to that ministry for the next two years. But nothing I heard from the pulpit really changed my life because every time I heard the gospel, I thought, God's grace doesn't apply to me. I'm too far gone. God can't love me the way that I am. And so I was just so hard-hearted and angry and bitter towards God, but what did change my life were some of the relationships I built there this group of upperclassmen guys who just started to invest in my life. They started to uh, just love me unconditionally, do anything they could to show me the love of Christ. They started to give me a community where I could belong, where I could be loved, and they would you know, ask me questions about my spiritual life. Uh, and I had enough Sunday school background to give them the answers that I thought they wanted to hear, but they could tell that something wasn't adding up, that there wasn't fruit in my life, but they continued to love me and pursue me anyway. And I hadn't realized... How during those two years, God had really uh, used them to soften my heart. They, he used them to show me a different picture of Christianity than I'd grown up with. Their Christianity wasn't just this self righteous show up to church and put on a mask and pretend like everything is okay. But they truly love Jesus. They love people. They're open and real and authentic about their, their struggles and their sin. But they weren't just authentic for the, the sake of authenticity, they're authentic for the sake of repentance. And, and change in their life. And so because of that, I could see Jesus working in them. I could see Jesus changing them from the inside out. Well, after my sophomore year, things kind of came to a breaking point in my life. I, I tried uh, uh, digging more into the LGBT community, and there's some of that that felt so satisfying. Some of it felt so fulfilling. And one of the things I say a lot that I always hate to say, but sometimes this is true, that sometimes the gay community can be much more loving than the church community. And so I'd found some level of love and acceptance there, but my heart was still longing. I I came to a place where I felt like this isn't doing it for me anymore. I remember walking away from every sexual encounter, every relationship, and feeling like this isn't doing for my soul what it promised to do for my soul. This isn't making me feel loved the way that it's supposed to make me feel loved. And so here I was, hopeless, because I put all the chips on the table of that, that life is going to fulfill me, that community is going to fulfill me, that's going to lead to my happiness, and it wasn't. It wasn't doing it for me. And so I was hopeless, I was suicidal again, I just had no idea how I could move on from there or what direction I was supposed to uh, go in life, because what I would put my hope in had now been failing me. Well, I, dec- I was at a place of uh, just considering suicide. I wanted in my life, I just wanted to be over, have this over with. But I decided that before I ended my life, I wanted to tell one of my Christian friends about this uh, life I'm living in the gay community because I did a really good job of living this double life. The, the LGBT community was still much more underground in those days, and so I could kind of pull off this living a double life. And I didn't think they knew anything about it. Uh, and it turns out they knew a lot more than I, I thought they did. But I, I want to tell one of my Christian friends, it's going to be affirmation that they don't actually love me the way that they claim to love me. They love the person they think I am. They love this image I've portrayed to them. But if they knew the life I was actually living, there's no way that they'd actually love me. And so I told one of my, my friends, his name was Lex, and when I told him about this life I'm living, I poured out my whole heart about my history with pornography and sexual encounters and, and relationships and all of that. And we we're, were in my stepdad's house, and I actually had a gun loaded in my room. And I said, uh, when he rejects me, that's just going to be the end of my life. Well, I'm still standing here today, so obviously Lex didn't reject me. Instead, he, he came across the room, gave me this big hug, and said, hey, man, I love you. And this is going to be okay because your sin is no better or worse than my sin. And I don't know what this is going to look like, but we're going to get through this together. And that just blew my mind that a Christian of all people could love me so well. And for the next three days, there's this thought racing through my mind that I couldn't get out of my mind. I, I kept thinking, I think that Jesus still loves me. Because uh, I could see Jesus working in Lux, I could see Jesus working... Uh, um, in his heart, changing him. So I, I kept saying, that can't be Lux who loves me. That has to be the Jesus I see in him who loves me. And so for the first time, I became convinced that I think that Jesus still loves me, that I think that his grace is sufficient for my life too. And so because of that, on June 21st, 2006, I fell to my knees in repentance towards Christ. I had one of these tear-filled, not covered moments at the cross of Jesus. And that was the moment I, I gave it all to him, And you see, I'd always called myself a Christian. I'd always done all these Christian things. Uh, I I spent a lot of time as a teenager praying that God would take these struggles and feelings away. And he hadn't done that. But what I realized Uh, In this moment of of repentance to Christ, my faith, my Christianity was nothing more than just my demands on God. It was my terms and conditions. It was me telling God, all right, God, I'll follow you, but uh, here's what I demand. I demand that you take these feelings away. I demand that you make me instantly attracted to women. You give me a wife, a nice house, a white picket fence, the whole American dream. And that type of faith is no faith at all. But finally, I was at a place of surrender where I said, all right, God, I trust that you love me and your love is enough for me. And so I surrendered all to you. I don't care what it takes. I don't care who I have to tell. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what it costs me. I trust that you love me and that love is enough. And that's the gospel that God is calling us to. Complete surrender to him no matter what the cost. So that was the moment that God stepped into my soul and saved me for eternity. And my life instantly started to change. I told the rest of my my kind of Christian circle of buddies, and they responded with just as much love and grace as Lex had. These guys didn't know anything about homosexuality. They didn't know anyone else who was gay or same-sex attracted. But what they did know was that the Bible had all the answers for life. So they started to pray with me, read scripture with me, and they listened. And for the first time, I had this community where I could be real about everything going on in my heart. And for those first few weeks, there's a whole lot of kind of emotional vomiting going on. But they listened and they loved me and and they, they, they prayed with me and they read with me. But I was still struggling because I still had this attraction towards men. So what am I supposed to do with that now? And I was, I was asking questions like, well, if God's grace is enough, can't I still go on being gay? And maybe it'll be different now. Maybe I can find a monogamous relationship. And uh, now that I have Christ as my ultimate fulfillment, maybe uh, that life in the gay community, maybe um, it would be enough now. Maybe that would make me happy when I have Christ in my life also. But as I, as I combed through God's word and I read God's word and I, I read about the creation of marriage and the, the life that God has for us, I couldn't find anything except for marriage being one man and one woman for one lifetime. And I kept finding passages like First Peter where it says, be holy as I am holy. And thankfully I had this conviction, this understanding that if God's word is our hope for eternity, if God's word is written by him and errant and, and this is how he speaks to us, then I need to surrender all of God's word. I can't just pick and choose the parts that I surrender to. So I was determined by the end of the summer that God is calling me to live a different life. And, but how was I supposed to do that? Because it felt so much like this is just who I am. I can't control this. I can't help this. But there was a passage of Scripture that summer that helped me live a different life, that gave me hope that I could live differently, that I'd like to share with you. It comes from 1 Corinthians 6. You guys have heard this over and over when it comes to uh, homosexuality. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. It seems like I only heard these two verses growing up, though. Verse 9 and 10 say, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, Uh, Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I'd always heard those two verses point out just towards the homosexual community as kind of this self-righteousness of, hey, look at them. See, they're not inheriting the kingdom of God. When really I think that that list of sins covers all of us, many of us on a daily basis. But my life started to change when someone read me the very next verse it says, verse 11, And such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that just blew my mind that it said, such were some of you in past tense. Uh, that, that they were homosexuals, but they're no longer that because they're washed by the blood of Christ. Now I realize that this is not a new issue that's just crept up in our culture the last 50 years, but 2,000 years ago, Uh, people were homosexuals and all kinds of other sinners, and Christ was washing them and sanctifying and changing their lives. And that gave me hope that he could do the same for me. And so by the end of the summer, I'd walked away from my homosexual lifestyle, I walked away from the sexual encounters, relationships, that community. I was starting to get a grasp on my pornography addiction for the first time. But I I want to be clear on Something And that's that my, the transformation God did in my life that summer wasn't from gay to straight. And I feel like that's the, the hope, the goal, the desire that the church has for people like me, uh, to convince them to be straight. And God didn't take me from gay to straight. Instead, God took me from lost to saved. And that is so much more remarkable than any type of just be external behavior change. He, he stepped in my soul and rescued for me for eternity And that's so much better than any type of just external morality. And it was out of that transformation, out of that rescuing grace, that then he changed the way that I was living. And so by the end of the summer, I'd walked away from the homosexual life. And so I want to share with you guys a few things that helped me walk away and live a different life. The first was he gave me value, showed me that my value does not come from other people, doesn't come from other men, doesn't come from relationships or these, these feelings that, that people can give me, but my value comes from him because he created me in his image. That If he's the ruler of the world, if he's all-present, all-powerful, and he created me, then my value comes from him, not from other people. Second was that he gave me power. He showed me that now that I'm a believer, now that I'm in him, I have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me. And that gives me the power to wake up every day to choose to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God, no matter what feelings, attractions, and temptations I might have that day. And that's a power I didn't have as a non-believer. And I feel like this is one area um, in our Christian culture where we somehow expect to convince non-believers to live a biblical life that we try to convince them that what they're doing is wrong and that they should change, but they're dead in their transgressions. They're blind to their sin. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them to transform them. But now I had that. Third was he gave me an eternal perspective. We live in a culture that says that expecting people to follow biblical standards of sexuality in relationships is not only impractical, but they say it's inhumane. But many moments when I've been struggling over these last 14 years and had doubts and had pain because of this, uh, God has always been faithful to remind me of this picture of Jesus in in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he's crucified. Jesus is so tormented about what he's going to be going through on the cross that he's actually sweating drops of blood. And I, I see that, and I, I read about that, and uh, I try to comprehend what Jesus was going to be go, going through, it. and then I see that he was obedient to that. He still went and did that. And he did that not only for the sins of the world, but for my sin. And one of my favorite verses is John nineteen thirty, where Jesus speaks his last words on the cross. He says, it is finished. And in doing so, he gave me the one thing I need for eternity, which is himself. And so, in spite of the fact that I have everything I need for eternity, that makes my desires here on earth seem seem so much less important. It makes what the world tells me that I need seem like so much foolishness when Christ has already given me everything I need for eternity. And fourth, he gave me a new identity. Showed me that I'm not defined by my attractions. I'm not defined by my feelings. I'm not defined by the labels that society gives me. I'm not even defined by the labels or the, the boxes that sometimes the church tries to put me in. But my identity is in Christ and only in him. I'm defined by him alone. Uh, I'm asked many times, why is this sin of homosexuality being treated in our culture so much differently than other sins? Like, we're not forced to celebrate, uh, you know, other sins. And I did give a little bit of pushback on that. And, you know, it's like there are other sins we celebrate. I feel like we celebrate gluttony at every church potluck. And, you know, that's acceptable. Uh, uh, but But it is somewhat different in our culture, and I I think that part of the reason why this sin issue seems so different, it's so much about identity. It's so much about not what I'm doing, but who I am. But as time went on, God started to chip away at my identity and my sexuality, and my identity in Christ started to outweigh my identity I'd built for myself. And so God continued to mold me and shape me, and over the years started to illuminate areas of my heart to show me what my heart had twisted. And our world is adamant that, that people uh, who are gay, same-sex attracted, are born gay, and that's just the way they are, but my life proves otherwise, and there's thousands of us. You guys heard another story last week of that type of transformation, that, that, uh, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives can change, we can live a different life. And I started to see... How my heart had been so uh, just deceited by the world and by myself. Uh, You know, people always talk about having a life verse. And I always joke that I think that my life verse is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. And so God, by his grace, started to reveal where my heart had deceived me. started to reveal some of this idolatry in my life that was contributing to my same-sex attraction. This idolatry of looking to other people, looking to other men for my value and my hope and my wholeness to try to acquire from other men what I wanted for myself. We we see this type of idolatry in Romans 1 when he talks about homosexuality. It starts with this progression of they traded God's truth for a lie. And because they trade God's truth for life, they started worshiping created things. They started worshiping creation instead of the creator. And it says they started worshiping images of God while people are made in the image of God. So they started worshiping people. They started worshiping each other. And, and because of this worship of each other, they developed sexual desire for people of the same gender, a sexual desire for one another. And God gave them over to that lust, and they had sexual relations with people of the same gender. Well, God took me down on this reverse course of that, where through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gave me control over the way I was living my life. Then over the years, he started to reveal the lies that I'd believed about myself, about God, and about the world, and gave me all these moments where he traded the lies I believed for his truth. And in every one of those moments, gave me more and more freedom from this life and these feelings and desires that once enslaved me. And as I've walked with hundreds of other guys now over the years with same-sex attraction who are uh, Christians with same-sex attraction or guys trying to leave the gay community, I've seen that same idolatry in their hearts, this idolatry of finding my hope and my value and my wholeness in someone else other than Christ. But the thing is, I've also discipled a lot of just normal straight guys over the years. I spent a lot of years in full-time college ministry and as I was discipling these, these guys and they were pursuing relationships and talking about marriage, uh, I started to see the exact same idolatry uh, that's at the root of same-sex attraction at the root of so much heterosexual attraction, not only outside the church but inside the church. I've seen that we've bought into this form of marriage that's all about how you make me feel, what you can do for me. I, we, we've bought into this form of marriage that says, uh, I can find my hope and my value and my wholeness through you. And this has been going on since really the fall of man. We, we see clear back in Genesis 29, there's the story of Jacob and Rachel. And I don't have time to read through the, the whole chapter today, but if you guys know the story of Jacob and Rachel, Jacob's life is a wreck. He has a, made some bad decisions, has to flee his home, has to flee his land, flee his family. And Uh, His life is a wreck, and he comes to this place where he sees this beautiful woman named Rachel. And he's just infatuated with her. He has to have Rachel as his wife. And so he's willing to enslave himself for seven years to Rachel's dad so that he could be given Rachel as his wife. Well, if you know the story, after those seven years, he's actually tricked into being with uh, Rachel's older sister Leah instead of Rachel. But Leah isn't good enough for him. And so he's willing to enslave himself for another seven years so that he can actually have Rachel as his wife. And so was Jacob's desire for uh, Rachel, this godly biblical design of marriage of, I I see so many of God's gifts in you, and think about how we could build God's kingdom together. Think about how we could be on mission together. Uh, Look at what God could do in the world with us together, partnering together. No, it wasn't that of you at all. His life was a wreck and he thought he could find redemption in a woman. But it, and we do that all the time in our culture. We try to find redemption through another person when redemption can only come from Christ. And so if we we're going to handle this issue well sexuality in our culture And inside the church, we we have to look at the bigger picture of marriage and relationships. We can't just respond to the LGBT community out there. We need to look at how we are handling marriage and relationships. What foundation are we building our marriages on? What standards do we have? As I was going on in my um, 20s, um, I'm now in my 30s, but through my 20s, I was really convinced that I'd probably never be married. Uh, I, I thought that because of my struggle, because my past, just and with how the world defines marriage, marriage would be impossible for someone like me. And I was really okay with that. I was content with my relationship with Christ, and knew that Christ is enough. And that's a great place to be. And feel like that's where everyone should be before they pursue marriage. It's knowing that Christ is enough. But as I was in seminary in Laramie a few years ago, God was stirring in my heart that maybe marriage is a possibility for me. And I wanted to be very careful because I didn't want to put my hope in marriage like, like so, I'd seen so many other people do. But I also want to be open to what God might have for me. And so, I, I was, this, this was stirring in my heart that um, if marriage was built on the right things, on, on biblical principles, it, it could be possible. And at that time, one of my friends I went to seminary with messaged me and said, Hey, Brady, there's this really remarkable woman in uh, our, our church. Would you be interested in going on a blind date with her? And I was like, Oh, sure. What will it hurt? And so, um, I went on a blind date with this woman named Mary. She's now my wife. And so, it's getting kind of serious. Uh, but kind of a funny story, I didn't share this first service because we're on time constraints, but you know, we, now we have all day. Uh, but um, uh, when I had my first, my blind date with Mary, this big moment, you know, it's like I'd never been on a date with a woman before, and I live in Nebraska, she lived here in Cheyenne, so I was supposed to come out here uh, for a date, but the day before our date, my house burned down. And so I had to text her and say, sorry, I can't go on our blind date, my house burned down. And it's like, great excuse. And so I I text her some pictures of my house. And she was like, oh my gosh, your house did burn down. And uh, so we went on our date about a a month later. It obviously worked out. But as I was dating Mary and God was doing some great work in my life and her life to, to lead us towards marriage, I kept getting all these really interesting questions and comments from Christians. I'd hear Christians say things like, Oh, Brady, you're dating a woman, so you're attracted to women now. Now, I just cringe at that because I'd say, no, 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 I don't want to trade my lust for men for lust for women. That could be nowhere in the kingdom of heaven. I only want to be attracted to one woman, and that's my wife. And over the course of of three and a half years now of dating and engagement and now marriage, God has built a desire for intimacy with my wife in ways the world says is impossible for someone like me. Because God has built desire for intimacy based on my deep knowledge of her and trust of her and, and commitment and reliance on her. And then it's, it's healthy intimacy that follows that. Where we live in a world that's all about this shallow intimacy that's, that's built on idolatry and lust. But, but I can live a life that the world says is impossible because when intimacy is built on the trust of the gospel and who God is. And when I have everything I need in Christ, that means I can love my wife unconditionally, uh, not for what she does for me and how she makes me feel, but because I've already been given everything I need in Christ. So how do we make disciples in a world that is so confused and so blind to uh, the realities of sexuality and marriage? The point where, like I said earlier, they think that living it by a biblical standard of Um, God's God's design for marriage is not only impractical, it's inhumane. How do we walk alongside people in our church? Because this is not an issue just for people out there. It's an issue with people in here. How do we make disciples in this world? I want to to leave you with uh, just four challenges on how we can make disciples, what we can do to respond to these issues. The first one is this. If we're going to make disciples in our present world, we have to be safe people and create safe environments. This is really just living out Ephesians 4.29, where it says, make sure that uh, everything you say gives grace to those who hear. And as the church, we have not done that with these issues. We've not talked about sexuality issues in ways that gives grace to those who hear. I was speaking at a church one day, and this guy came to me afterwards and told me that he'd struggled with same-sex attraction his entire life, and it really just held him captive and paralyzed his faith. And Uh, he'd never told anyone. I was the first person he'd ever told. And I was talking to him. He said that he was in a small group. He had a men's group with a few other guys, and he'd been in the same men's group for five years. I said, why would you not tell them about the the struggle you're having? And he said that one of the first weeks that they met as as a men's group, one of the guys made a comment about homosexuality. Another guy said, well, it's a good thing none of us are struggling with that. And you know, I have no doubt that those guys had no malicious intent, but they had no idea that someone in the room was deeply affected and wounded by these issues. So we have to talk about these issues in ways that gives grace to those here, because we have no idea who is deeply affected by them, who has been deeply wounded and hurt. We have to talk about these issues in ways that gives grace to people and builds bridges between us and people, and therefore hopefully between people and Jesus instead of putting up barriers. The second is this. We need to practice what we preach. Um, I mentioned this a little earlier, that uh, some of the same idolatry behind uh, same-sex attraction is some of the same idolatry I see behind so much heterosexual attraction. We've, we've built marriage in our culture um, on this foundation of what someone can do for me and how they can make me feel. And that is not love. That is self-love. That's loving me. But the, and so the homosexual community, the LGBT community, they're never going to buy the message of the gospel that we have unless they see us transformed by that same gospel. Unless they see us transform how we view marriage and the purpose of marriage. I see in our culture... We usually pursue people in relationships for two reasons. One is we pursue who we're the most sexually attracted to and who will make us happy. That That's kind of our grid on who we're going to pursue and who we want to be married to. And so... It's no wonder that the the LGBT community has has demanded the right to be married to who will make them happy, they think, and who they're the most sexually attracted to, because that's what we've turned marriage into. That's the foundation we've built marriage on in our culture. I was uh, in my church in Laramie a few years ago when I was going to seminary there, and I was kind of overheard this group of college-age guys talking, and I think it really sums up uh, how much we've twisted sexuality relationships in our culture. They were talking about dating and potential girls that they could date, and one of the guys said, pointed out to another guy, said, oh, there's this certain girl in the church, uh, maybe you could date her. And he said, well, no, she's only a seven, and I'm holding out for an eight. And I really wanted to step in and say, well, you're only a two, so uh, let's do some math here and see how that works out. Thankfully, I was filled with the Spirit of the Lord that day, and I held my tongue. Uh, But that just is a picture of what we've turned marriage into. And so if we're going to make disciples in this culture, we need to practice where we preach. I still go to a lot of churches uh, where the attitude is, look at the gay community. They're ruining the sanctity of marriage. We hear that term over and over again. And my, uh, my response is always, I think that heterosexuals have done a pretty good job of that over the last hundred years with no-fault divorce, cohabitation, all kinds of sex outside of marriage, pornography. And if you fall in one of those categories today, God's grace is absolutely sufficient for that. But we can't call... Uh, our culture to repentance of something we're not willing to repent of ourselves. We need to um, repent of the way that we've uh, degraded the sanctity of marriage. Our response to the world out there starts in here. The next is this if we're going to make disciples in our culture, we need to judge rightly. Let me unpack that a little bit. I think when I was growing up, uh, our cultural verse, the verse that everyone knew, the verse that everyone clung to, whether they were a believer or not, was John 3.16. It's the first verse we learn in Iwana, you know, uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believed in him shall have uh, everlasting life. So everyone wanted to cling to the fact that God loves me. God loves me. That's what everyone wanted to believe, whether they, they surrender their life to Christ or not. But I think that right now, our cultural verse comes from Matthew 7-1, but not the whole verse, uh, just the words, do not judge or judge not. Everyone says, do not judge. It's not your place to judge. Who are you to judge? Uh, Unless you disagree with culture, and then they judge us. But but that's our cultural verse that everyone clings to, is that we can do whatever we want, because God says, do not judge. But in reality, we look at the bigger context of that verse. Where it says, "Do not judge, uh, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you." And this isn't words to the unbelieving world. We can't expect culture to uh, live a biblical life. This is words to the church. That we should not be judging. We should not be hypocritical. We shouldn't be judging in a way that, uh, in a standard that we're not willing to hold ourselves to. And so we we serve a God who. Is a God of judgment. Uh, he looks at his creation and he judges and says, "This is good. This is very good. This is not good." And He's made us in His image, so He's He's given us discernment. We should be able to look at our culture and look at our lives and look at other people's lives and measure them against God's word and use discernment to say, "This is not good. This is bad. This is very good." We should be able to make those judgments, but. Uh, I think the difference from how we've done that in the past is our attitude of judgment should come from an attitude of humility and sorrow, not one of self-righteousness. When when we see the world and we see them trapped in sin and so confused, our attitude should be one of humility, knowing that we are just as undeserving of God's grace and sorrow that they have not yet discovered a relationship with Christ that's going to free them from their sin like we have. So we judge the world around us with an attitude of humility and sorrow. And lastly is this. We enter the mess. Uh, we, we've often lived in a church world where we try to keep everything sterile and clean. I, I was talking to a lady in a church where I spoke one day, and she came up to me and, and was chatting, and she said, Yeah, I really should reach out to my lesbian neighbors, but that sinister is just too yucky for me. And I had two responses for One was, go home and look at yourself in the mirror and realize that Jesus had to hang on the cross just as long for you as he did for your lesbian neighbors. And two is, go to Acts 17 where we see Paul, he goes to Athens and he gets there and he sees a city that's so full of idolatry, uh, which included then sexual sin and homosexuality that he's actually physically sickened by it. But did he say, that sin is just too yucky for me, that's just too gross, I can't go there? No, he went there and he lived with them. He got close to them so he said that he could understand the idols their hearts were serving. Therefore, he could apply the gospel to it. Discipleship is messy because people are messy and we have to be willing to enter the messiness of their lives so that we can understand the idols that people are serving, the idols that have captured their hearts, so we can apply the gospel to that. And so if we're going to make disciples, and we can't just keep a clean, sterile environment, and it's okay because Christ has already washed us clean, but we enter the mess of other people's lives to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this time. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the opportunity to share my story and, and uh, a little bit from your, your word. And um, I, I pray that this can be a church that is a light to the world. I pray that this can be a church that. Um, doesn't just first look at the world, but instead looks at themselves and can have the grace to look at themselves and ask, where have I twisted sexuality? Where have I uh, idolized people? And that they can be transformed, that your grace be enough to transform that areas of their lives. And because of that, they can be a light to the world and that they can, they can call their people to yourselves because out of the same way that they've been transformed. So we pray for this church. We pray for healing and Uh, restoration in relationships and marriages and sexuality, and and pray for transformation in this town. pray these things your name. Amen.
2: Thank you, Brady. Um, In the first service, I had written down a bunch of questions that I was going to ask Brady, and towards the end of his talk, I I was reading through them, like, oh, well, he answered that question, and then he answered that question, and he answered all my questions. So um, I, I thought it was excellent. One of the things that really hit me, Brady, was, uh, that I really, uh, it was just good for me to hear, is the comment that you made to the lady who said that her lesbian uh, neighbors were just too, that sin's just too yucky, and, uh, and that God has called us to enter into the mess, which we're part of that mess, and that uh, the, the, the statement that Jesus hung on the cross just, he hung, the amount of time he hung on the cross for my sin was the amount of time he hung on the cross for, for other people's sins, regardless of, of what it is. And so um, I think that should motivate us and encourage us to enter into the mess. That's what it means to live on mission. Um, and as you all know, that's our, that's our uh, mission statement, our vision statement. I mean, you have those three words in our cafe area, pray, engage, develop. Well, engaging means that we, that we enter into the mess because that's where God has called us to. So Brady, thank you so much for Absolutely. for coming and sharing. Thank you. I'm glad our cat uh, introduced yes. us to each yes. other. Um, it, there's a table out in the in the uh, cafe area. Brady's got some information
0: and there's some dvds out there that has my testimony and this kind of same type of message then a whole bunch of kind of q a questions i always get and so there's a couple of hours of content on there so feel free to grab a dvd there's also a sign-up sheet for uh, i send out some occasional updates on prayer requests this is a spiritual battle talking about these issues in our culture and so i appreciate people's prayer and so uh, please sign up for uh, updates so you know how to pray for the ministry and can see the the cool things that god's doing
2: Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church
0: Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.